0: Lord, thank you so much for this evening, for bringing us together and allowing us to come study your word. I pray that your word would invade our hearts and shape our minds, Father, that we might be the kind of witness and the kind of people in this world that you have called us to be. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your son, and all that you are. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you guys know the drill, text your questions during class uh, to that number. Happy to answer questions about tonight's or last week, and I appreciate you being so uh, good about the video last week, apologize. Uh, but we, Laura and I went on vacation. It's the first time we've been on vacation, just the two of us for quite a while. We went to uh, London and rented a car, headed out into the countryside. That is a trip. Driving on the wrong side of the road is, is an intense experience. And uh, let's just say that with her navigating and me driving, I only got honked at once. I, I consider that successful. And then spent some time in London, then went to Dublin and came back. And so we had a great time together. I said to Laura, you know, there were great stores to shop in, there were great things to see. And I said, honey, what was your favorite thing? And she said, you know, dear, I think it was just being with you. Was that what she said or was it the shopping and then just, it was close, I was close. I was in the top three, I'm pretty sure about that. One of the things I wanted to show you, this is not going to be show and tell from vacation, but this is Westminster Abbey, and this kind of ties into our lesson last week, but uh, there are some beautiful cathedrals and churches, ancient. This Westminster Abbey, probably actually a church existed there before this, but in 1042 AD, Edward the Confessor basically started building this. I mean, this thing's 900 years old. I mean, the history there is amazing. When you get inside, it's absolutely gorgeous inside. And so, when we were there, we were there over a Sunday, so we went to church there. And one of the interesting things to me, we'd been talking in our prior series uh, kind of about the culture in our country. And then last week's lesson was kind of just taking a look at the world culture in terms of is it Christian or not. It's really interesting there to see these places are so gorgeous so few people really committed to their faith. I think I mentioned to you in the video last week, fewer than 10% in England attend church. And so you get this feeling when you're sitting in there that this is a monument to a faith of the past. It's almost like a museum of faith. So we went to a service there, an Anglican service there, and it was nice enough, but I'm sitting there listening to this and they're talking about you know how Jesus' mission is continuing in his followers and all, and I thought to myself, I'm sitting there, would I would I believe in the God that, that we're talking about here? And I thought to myself, I'm not sure that I would. And it gave me a real perspective on how vibrant faith is here and what the potential is for it. So it was, it was very interesting being there and seeing that. But while we were there, 11 days, really totally unplugged, which was great. And that was kind of Laura's condition is you cannot do any work you know, while you're there. But I have one question for you. What did you guys do while we were gone with this election? I mean, I left here. I thought this thing was pretty stable. I come back, and the whole world is turned upside down. I mean, this series is not about the election, but I have to say, you know, in our last series, we talked about polls, and so the, just so you know, the New York Times does a, uh, an aggregated poll. And it's 45 Hillary, 42 Donald, and that is way narrower than when I left. And then Rasmussen's polls got it dead even overall. So I just thought we were going to coast on out on this, but you guys just didn't do a good job of keeping this under control. So things are are heating up and kind of getting a little turbulent. This does tie into this series just a little bit, because what we're doing in this series is I want to make the contention that the world has changed around us. And the way we view the world is no longer the dominant worldview even in America. And so this series, we're going to dive into the book of 2 Timothy, and I'll tell you a little more about that in a minute, is really laying the groundwork for the future in America. And so a week from tonight, you come back a week and we'll all console you uh, about this election, and you say, well, how can you talk about consoling me when you don't know who's going to win? Because... Both of these candidates have higher than 50% disapproval ratings. So it doesn't matter who wins, everyone's still going to need to be consoled. I mean, it's one of the most unique elections in my memory. But we want to lay the groundwork for how are we as Christ followers going to embrace the, the new world in which we live. And so that's what we're going to talk about. In our last lesson. I'm just going to give you the basic points. We talked about understanding the times. We looked at a lot of statistics, and I think it may have surprised you a little bit on where Americans stand in terms of having a biblical worldview. In other words, thinking like Christ followers. We talked about moralistic, therapeutic uh, deism, the idea of a kind of a watered-down, more liberal version of Christianity that's very prevalent in our culture, and made three contentions First is that Christ followers are a minority in America. Now, people that say they're Christian are not a minority in America, but Christ followers are a minority in America. Secondly, we have moved past or are moving from a post-Christian culture to an anti-Christian culture. In other words, what used to be a post-Christian, meaning we're going to embrace secularism and Christianity is going to be one of many ideologies in the marketplace of ideas, to a Christianity is actually an unwelcome ideology in the marketplace of ideas in America. You see books about... um, being written now about how religion poisons everything, how God is not good, and that religion in general, Christianity specifically, is not good for a society. So we move from a post-Christian culture to an anti-Christian culture. And then finally, something that we need to remember is that politics is not the only source of power in a society. And we talked a lot about the idea of truth confronting power. And that you'll see this throughout the Bible is the idea of truth in the face of power. You saw it with Pharaoh in the Exodus. We saw it with Jesus in front of Pontius Pilate. You'll see this over and over in the scriptures as God speaks truth into a world that is dominated by certain power structures. So that's where we set the stage for what we're going to start talking about. So let me just draw a couple of conclusions from that, because I think Christians in America, excuse me, Christ followers in America, are in general feeling a lot of anxiety about the way things are going in our culture, not just an election that we're about to have, but in general. As you look at uh, social issues, if you look at the way the courts are moving very rapidly to mandate, in a fairly coercive way, social change, And so you begin to see a lot of the institutions, the mediating institutions in our culture being deconstructed. In other words, things that are traditional are just being tossed pretty quickly. So I think there's a lot of anxiety, I think there's some fear, and I think there's a high degree of frustration that Christ followers feel. And I wanna suggest to you that given the state of our culture, we need to stop defending something that no longer exists. In other words, there was a time when America, I hate to use the phrase Christian nation because it's hard to know what people actually mean by that. But in general, there was a time in in our lives, I believe, in the course of our lives where America was broadly based on Judeo-Christian ethics and morality. In other words, there were a larger population that were more Christ followers, who had a biblical worldview, and it was imbued in our society. And over a relatively short period of time, that has changed. And I think we sometimes find ourselves wishing to go back to something that no longer exists. In other words, feeling defensive about where we are and trying to defend something that no longer exists. A corollary to that is this. We're not called to be on defense. We, as Christians, the scripture calls us to be on offense, if you will. Think about the Great Commission. The Great Commission does not say, as Jesus says to his followers, I want you all to hunker down because things are going to get tough and you just make it till I get back. It doesn't. It says go into all the world. Make disciples of all the nations. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you baptize them. In other words, change of heart, change of mind. So it's a very offensive thing to do. In our book of 2 Timothy, the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, this young pastor, you're going to see in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, he said, now, Timothy, I want you to be bold because God did not give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of power and self-control. And so you see the Bible telling us to go press into our culture, not retreat from it. And so I think we need to stop defending something that no longer exists and remember, recalibrate our attitude to remember our mission. is not to protect turf, it's to invade Satan's rule in this world. So that's the takeaways I get from understanding the times in which we live. I think we need to recalibrate our attitude. I think that we will find ourselves less anxious Less fearful and less frustrated as we begin to recapture that mission. Well, I told you last time that I think the future of the church is ancient. In other words, the question then is a fair question that says, well, then what will our attitude be? How then shall we proceed in a world in which we as Christ followers are a minority? How does a minority thrive? In a, in a culture that's getting more and more hostile to the way that we believe. And I wanna take us back in time to a biblical model because this is not the first time this has happened to the church. It's not the first time it's happened to Christians. And God has made a record for us of how the church has weathered this kind of time before. So we're gonna go back into biblical times and I wanna talk to you about this book of 2 Timothy. It's in the New Testament. It's labeled uh, 2 Timothy, for some of you, or 2 Timothy, because it's simply the second letter that we have that Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy's a young pastor. He's out there starting churches in in an area where they're clearly minority. Obviously, Christians are very much a minority in that culture. And he's going to give him three key ideas on how to weather that situation. And I think all three of those are going to be important to us. But first, let me set the stage just a little bit. This is how he starts in 2 Timothy 3. He said, now listen, I I don't want to kid you here, Timothy. I want you to know that there will be terrible times. He said, and here's what I mean by that. People will be very self-centered, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving. In other words, you're going to see the basest desires of humanity come to the fore. So they'll be treacherous, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, this is what I felt, frankly. I remembered and thought about this verse as I'm sitting in that service. Is you're in this beautiful place that has a form of godliness, but frankly does not have the power of the gospel. And he says, have nothing to do with that. He said, that is not the way we think. But he's warning him. He said, this is the world into which you'll find yourself. A lot of times we read that list and we say, you could pick up a newspaper today or whip through your electronic uh, media, whatever, wherever you get your news, and you could really see these adjectives describing a lot of the way humanity is behaving today. My point is, we find ourselves in a very similar circumstance. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about that. I know you're all kind of history buffs and want to set the stage. The Apostle Paul had this encounter with Christ that changed the trajectory of his life. And he then began to go and take this good news about Jesus Christ all over the known world. And Paul, as he began to set up these churches, he began, it just the gospel spread like wildfire. People resonated with the truth of this good news. And so he begins to get a lot of resistance from the Jews at first, not so much from the Romans at this point. They think the Christians are just another crazy sect of the Jews. Well, as Paul, is uh, at one stage in his ministry, he wrote to the church in Rome. Rome is like the center of the universe. It is the capital of the most powerful nation. It would be like going to New York City and Los Angeles and Tokyo and Washington, D.C., all rolled into one. And he said, it's time for me to come to Rome and preach this good news literally on the doorstep of power. The truth of God is going to go where the power lives, and I'm going to take truth into the halls of power. So he wrote to the Romans, and he said, I want to come to Rome. In Romans chapter 15, he said, I'm going to come to Rome. I'd like to preach the gospel there, and then I'd like you to help me go on to Spain. Well, he does go to Rome but not exactly the way he thinks. He went to Jerusalem to deliver uh, some, some aid, basically, and while he's there, he got arrested by the Jews. They trumped up some charges, and they uh, are trying to get him into trouble, and he's imprisoned there for a couple of years while they do trials and that sort of thing. Finally, they have such a, a case against him, the Romans are like, well, you're kind of a troublemaker. He has to appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen, and he said, look, I want to be tried in front of Caesar because I'm a Roman citizen. And they said, so be it. And so he ends up going to Rome in chains. So this is about 60 AD that Paul sets out from Jerusalem, not exactly the way he thought, but he takes this trip. You can read about this in the book of Acts. But he gets to Rome, and when he gets to Rome, he's under house arrest. And that's where the book of Acts ends, by the way is that Paul's under house arrest, awaiting trial before Caesar, awaiting his accusers to come, and he's going to have a trial. Now, while he's doing this, he's writing several letters to some of the churches. And so you don't know exactly what happened to Paul after this, but when you read the book of Philippians, for example, which was written while he's imprisoned in Rome, the tone is very upbeat. He seems to be confident that God is going to see him through this and he's going to get out and he's going to continue with what he wants to do. So no one knows exactly what happens, but it seems very likely that he did indeed get released at that point in time because in 60 AD, the Romans really don't have the Christians on their radar and they're really not interested in little squabbles about religious issues. And so it's very likely that Paul got free. And so let me show you the Roman world At this time. So, what likely happened, this is according to church historians, this is not in the Bible, this is according to early church fathers, he probably left Rome and he went here through France, it was called Gaul at that time, headed for Spain. Well, in the meantime, while he's on this trip to go preach in Spain, where the gospel's probably not come at all, the emperor Nero decides that he's going, and this, this is the Bible happening in the middle of real life. You know, I'm big on you understanding that the, these are not just Bible stories, they're happening in the middle of real geopolitics. So the Emperor Nero, 64 AD, so Paul's probably loose, he's probably off going to preach. 64 AD, he decides we need some urban renewal in Rome. And so Rome was a huge city, all kinds of slums. And so what he did was he paid some guys to start a fire. I mean, this is just brutal, cruel. He was a crazy guy. So he starts a fire, and they have this massive fire in Rome. I mean, you got a lot of loss of life, and it just guts the city. And so rumors started that Nero started this fire because he didn't like the way things looked, and he wanted to rebuild it and make it look nicer, but he couldn't exactly evict these people, so the fire. Well... Even the emperor can't be that unpopular. So Nero came up with this idea. He starts to figure out who these Christians are and he starts to realize that they're not that popular with the Jews and they're not that politically connected. The Jews were politically connected. The Christians are not politically connected. I'll blame it on them. They worship this weird God anyway. They don't worship the Roman gods. They're not good citizens. So he starts the rumor that the Christians started the fire. This happened in 64 AD. Well, pretty quickly, public opinion really moves to be very hostile towards Christians for several reasons, one of which is the rumors that went around. And he started a lot of rumors. He said, you know, these Christians, they do this right where they actually practice cannibalism. They have the body and the blood of of people that they, well, you and I know that that's communion, that's uh, symbolic. They're obviously not doing that. But he started that rumor. He started a lot of other rumors about the Christians as well. And the big thing he said was, look, the Christians will refuse to honor the Roman gods. So Christians are not only weird in their religion They're bad citizens. And this is a key point I want you to realize. And so all through the empire, particularly bad over in Turkey and Asia, all through the empire, Christians began to get blamed for all kinds of natural disasters. Because in those days, if you had an earthquake, their thought was, well, the gods must be unhappy about something. Well, when that happened they began to say, well, that's because all these people are becoming Christians and they won't worship at the temple to Zeus and they won't worship, they won't give alms, they won't even say that Caesar is a god. They're very bad citizens. So Christians became very unpopular, not because they did anything wrong and they were still feeding uh, the hungry, and they were helping the poor. They're doing good things, but they became perceived as bad citizens of the empire. And Nero orchestrated this. So, Paul, as he's preaching, gets picked up and gets sent back to Rome and likely imprisoned a second time. Now, the situation is very different. Now, it's a very hostile situation towards Christians. Nero is going to use some of these Christian leaders like Paul to make an example of it. So this is the setting when he's writing the book of 2 Timothy. Very different. At this point, you can tell when you read the book, he knows he's not getting out of this alive. He understands the political environment is against him. Has he committed anything, done anything wrong? Of course he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't broken any Roman laws, but he realizes they're going to get him. In other words, he's going to be made an example of. And sure enough, according to church tradition, Nero had him beheaded sometime right before 68 AD because in 68 AD, Nero killed himself. And so Paul, according to church tradition, was executed by Nero probably 67 or 68 AD. So as Paul's writing this book of 2 Timothy, he's writing it in a situation where Christ followers are not only in a minority, they're considered bad citizens of the empire, and there's a lot of hostility towards what they believe. Now, I know sometimes that's hard for us to comprehend. You think, how can you be against people that are forgiving and loving and kind and are good citizens and try to follow the laws, and yet it happened? And you could make that same argument in our culture today because I'm going to suggest to you that that exact same situation happens. More and more, Christ followers are considered to be not very good citizens. You know, the stance that we take on social issues, the stance that we take on certain political issues, the the way we are active goes very much against the secular worldview. Christians today will not worship at the altar of the gods of our culture any more than Christians of that day would worship at the, at the temple of Zeus. And consequently, Christians today, Christ followers today, are more and more being thought of as not very good citizens, not desirable citizens of our nation. And so I think we're in a lot of the similar circumstances there, and that's when this book of 2 Timothy was written. It was written in that kind of an environment into Christians who are struggling with a, an increasingly hostile culture. So, for example, if the Christians who lived in uh, what's called Asia Minor, so basically you see it there, it's labeled Asia on this map, but it's modern-day Turkey. Christians who lived in that area really came under huge persecution. In fact, the book of Revelation, last book in your New Testament, is written about 95 A.D., so think about it. That's another 25 years of this kind of hostility. The seven churches of Revelation are all in that area. And you read it, you realize they're all experiencing huge persecution, not just from the Jews, but institutional persecution by the Roman government themselves. And so this letter, I think, addresses people who are in a really similar circumstances that we are in. So I think in this letter, there are three key ideas that Paul writes to Timothy, he said, Look, I know that my time has come and I'm gonna die. One of the most poignant passages in the New Testament in Second Timothy chapter four. He said, The time has come for my departure. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I've fought the good fight. I've you know finished the race. He said, My time is done. He said, But you're gonna face very difficult times, and I wanna tell you what you need to do to thrive in this kind of environment. And let me just fast forward and tell you the end of the story. The church explodes in this environment. You think to yourself, oh wait a minute, probably ends up like all those churches in England that we went in, those beautiful churches but I bet there's nobody going there. That's not what happened. Christianity exploded in the midst of that circumstance. And that always makes me very curious and makes me think there are transferable ideas from then to now. So let's dive into this and start looking a little bit at the text. I want to talk about this first key. And the first one is this. The power of the gospel, and this is going to sound a little counterintuitive, but the power of the gospel rests in in endurance. The gospel fuels our ability to endure, to persevere. You'll see this word translated perseverance or endurance. And then I want to talk about the idea of, of resilience of faith just a little bit. But you're going to see this idea of suffering and enduring. And when I say suffering, I'm not necessarily, in this context, he's not really talking about suffering like I have cancer and I'm suffering physically or I'm suffering you know, uh, from some other uh, physical ailment. I mean, that is indeed suffering. Don't misunderstand me. But what he's talking to Timothy about is more this environment. In other words, the idea of oppression. Christians, for example, couldn't get jobs. In certain parts of the empire, because to get the job, you had to worship the gods. They couldn't worship the gods, so their livelihood. They became poor. A lot of them became very poor, had a hard time making a living. Others were ostracized. You know, your kids were made fun of at school. You literally couldn't live in certain towns. When he's talking about suffering and enduring, he's talking about bearing up under circumstances that are not favorable to what you believe to be true and the message that you are are giving. There's a great little quote out there by a guy who isn't even slightly Christian, but even non-Christians understand this idea. He said, you can live with almost any how if you have a why. You can live with almost any how if you have a why. And there's some truth in that. And the power of the gospel for endurance revolves around this idea of a very compelling vision of what we are doing. That's why I say we need to recalibrate our attitude because if we're playing defense, I think we're going to find ourselves very anxious and very frustrated. But if we are on mission, I think we're going to find this idea of God-fueled endurance kicking in. So let's look at the scripture a little bit. First of all is the reality of trials and difficulties. Here's what Paul says to Timothy right off the bat, chapter one. He says, listen, don't be ashamed. In other words, I want you to be bold and courageous to testify About our Lord. In other words, to go tell this message. Timothy, like, but Paul, people don't like this message, and the Roman government is trying to squelch this message. He said, "I do not want you to be ashamed of this. I want you to be courageous, testify, or ashamed of me, a prisoner. Join with me in suffering, in, in in dealing with these trials for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of His own purpose and grace." This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And there's a real key there into the idea of how do Christians endure. It's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that's why I'm in jail. Yet I am not ashamed. I'm not intimidated because I know whom I have believed. This is one of the beautiful passages in the Bible. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. In other words, I am convinced that he has the power to see us through this and see us into eternity. So this passage talks a lot about, right at the beginning, he's going to talk about the reality of difficulty. And I think that's important. You might just say, oh, well, okay, sure. Jesus said in this world you'll have difficulty doesn't mean you'll have difficulty all the time and that being a Christ follower means you're always going to be miserable. But Jesus was pretty upfront and said, look, the world hated me. It's going to hate you too. In other words, you will come into conflict with the powers of this world. I think the Bible's just upfront about that reality. And sometimes we just nod our head and say, yeah, I know, I've read the Bible, I understand that. We need to let that sink in because my contention to you is it's beginning to happen to us. And in America, we're not used to that feeling but I don't want us to feel like, wow, I've got a new feeling, and that's disconcerting, but it's not a new issue. This was contemplated 2,000 years ago, and I think that should make us just relax a little bit and say, you know what, we are not used to being in this situation, but God saw this coming, and God's people have been in this situation before. So the reality of suffering and difficulty. He goes on and he says in the second chapter, He continues the whole first and second chapter are around this theme of endurance, which you can understand why. He said, look, I understand the situation that you're in. And the first key I want to tell you is trust in the power of the gospel for us to endure, to outlast, to make it through these situations. He said, I want you to endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Great word picture there. It's that soldiers endure hardships. We stay on our mission even when it's not easy to do. He said, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. In other words, the Messiah, the one who was promised. This is the good news I preach, and that's why I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained up like a criminal, which is absurd if you think about it, chaining up Christ followers like criminals. And so, I mean, just given the nature of what Christians do, There's nothing that really you can point to and say, you're a lawbreaker, you've done something wrong, you've killed someone, you've done harm. He said, all Paul did was help people. He said, but I endure everything for the sake of the elect. In other words, the one God has chosen to bring to him. He said, there are people out there that are gonna respond to this good news and they're gonna have eternity with Christ. I'll endure anything for the sake of the elect. They too may obtain salvation that's in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. One of the reasons that the gospel powers us to endure is because there's a purpose in what is happening to us. That is not true in our culture. Our culture's view of suffering, difficulty, discomfort, I don't want to use the word suffering because we don't really suffer that much here, discomfort, displeasure, a lack of security, a lack of having what I want, a lack of gratification. In other words, when we don't get what we want in our culture, that's considered a bad thing and it should be avoided, because there is no point whatsoever in suffering and having trials or difficulties. Trials and difficulties are simply undesirable things that should be avoided. It's very difficult to endure when that's your view, to endure trials or difficulty or hardship, and that's why people will say today, particularly when you think about the greatest generation, that World War II generation and the sacrifices they made, You see a lot of commentators, and I think rightly, drawing a contrast between that generation and today's generation and making the conclusion that today we are very soft. We are very spoiled. We are not used to sacrifice and enduring difficulties. And one of the reasons is, the way our culture understands it, is there is no higher purpose than my pleasure and my comfort. And so any difficulty is simply to be avoided. That is not the view of the Bible. That is not what Christ followers think. There are two really powerful ideas. One is that the difficulties that we face are actually in service to God's plan. In other words, there's a purpose to this. In the secular world, in World War II for example, that generation saw a purpose and that was the survival of our nation. They saw a purpose higher than what they were doing. Christ followers have an ultimately higher purpose, and that is God actually has a plan in what is happening. In other words, the changes that have happened in America, the changes that happen in Europe, the hostility towards the point of view that we have does not take God by surprise. God doesn't say, oh, that's a real bummer because I'd really hope for success here, never saw that coming. God says, this is exactly what I predicted would happen. And this is exactly what I'm going to use to bend this to my purpose. In other words, all of history moves to God's purposes. And so when Christians encounter difficulties, one reason that the gospel powers us to endure is to know that this is part of God's plan. God has a purpose in what's going to happen here. A couple of other passages, and there are Dozens of passages in the New Testament about this, but here two you probably know. Romans 5 says this. He says, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, in our difficulties. Why? Knowing that our difficulties produce endurance. Endurance produces character, character hope, and hope will not put us to shame. Hope will never disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Second purpose of this is not only are the difficulties we face contemplated in God's plan. They, in some way that we typically do not understand, they actually further God's plan, but difficulties also refine our faith. God is in the faith formation business, and difficulties refine our faith. We just finished a series in James here, and here's a passage that you saw in the first week. My brothers and sisters, consider it pure joy Which is a crazy thing to say, if you think about it, from a worldly perspective, when you fall into all kinds of trials because you know that the testing, and they're not the testing like do you pass or fail, but the pressing on your faith produces endurance. So the gospel is the power for endurance because we, as Christ followers, know that God has a plan. He is working out his plan, and the difficulties that we are facing are part of that plan. They're not a deviation from the plan. They're not a failure. They're actually part of the plan. And secondly, that God knows who we are, and he is using that to refine our faith, because that faith is eternal. Difficulties are temporal, and faith is eternal. So the gospel powers our endurance. The idea of endurance or perseverance or bearing up is a key idea through the entire Bible, actually. But specifically, it's, it's a big deal through the New Testament. Well, let's talk for a second about uh, what does it mean to endure? I mean, what does that actually look like? I want to give you a word picture on this because it's really not a passive event. This is a couple of statues of an ancient Greek guy. In the Greek mythology, there were some uh, supernatural beings called titans. And then there was another group of supernatural beings who were like the gods, you know, like Zeus and Hera and Apollo and all those guys, the Mount Olympus kind of gods. And they had this big battle. And the gods of Olympus won. And so the Titans, with the ones that weren't killed, got subject to hard labor. This guy's name, he was a Titan, and his name is Atlas. And Atlas was condemned, according to mythology, to literally hold up the world. In Greek mythology, his job was, simp- was literally to hold up the world. So you'll always see uh, Atlas holding up the world, being pressed by the weight. Of- you talk about having the weight of the world on your shoulders. He definitely, literally has the weight of the world on his shoulders. But what I like about that picture and what I like about that myth is this. They understood that the idea of endurance, and in fact the Greek word itself even has this active idea in it, Endurance is not just waiting. Endurance encompasses the idea of pushing back. Because if you look at this guy and you say, if he's just trying not to get crushed, he's going to be laying flat on the ground and the earth is going to literally crush him into a pulp. He has to push back. He has to hold it up. That is exactly the word picture. Of the idea of endurance or perseverance in the Scripture, it's not a passive activity; it's an active thing. We are literally pushing back against the forces that compel. And I don't mean pushing back in you know kind of a Donald Trumpish counterpunching way. Oh, you insult me? I'll insult you twice. I don't mean pushing back as in fighting. I just mean pushing back as in I will not allow it to be crushed. Faith is a very active thing. We tend to, if we aren't careful, we tend to fall on the idea that faith is just something you have. It's sort of like the Sam's card in my wallet. I just take it out when I need it and have, here, here's a little faith, you know, just charge that, run it through the, through the card reader, right? Faith is always conceived of in the New Testament as an active force. Faith acts It doesn't exist. It's an active force. And so the idea of endurance is basically faith is pushing back against the world. That's why the Great Commission can say, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, even though there are only, at that time, how many guys are there? Eleven. I mean, there's 11 of these guys, and they're not even that bright. And he says, look, I want you to go push Use your faith to be an active force to go take this word. And that same thing is true for us. So endurance is not just a let's all hunker down here in our church and try to build big walls so that the world can't get us. Faith pushes back. And that's the essence of endurance is the idea of pushing back. Well, then the question becomes, how do we do that? Because let's face it, we have a big enemy. And so you're saying, I hear what you're saying, Terry, that endurance requires effort. It requires the exercise of the muscles, if you will, of our faith to push back. But how do we do that? Because it seems like the forces pushing against us are so overwhelming. We are a minority. That's the majority. We have very little political power. We still have some in America, but you get into Europe and you realize Christ followers have almost no political power. You get into Timothy, the world of 2 Timothy, they have zero political power. In other words, we cannot control our own destiny in this nation. So you have this big enemy, how do I push back? Let me give you some examples. We're gonna go back into the, just, all, just quickly go through the whole scripture. Think about Moses for a minute. And By the way, this is why these things happened in history. This is why they're in your Bible, is for lessons like this. Here is the point of what happened with Moses. God goes to Moses. Think about how ridiculous this sounds. Moses minding his own business, herding some sheep, you know, soccer games with the kids on Saturday, you know, going to the, uh, you know, Elks meeting on Tuesday night, etc. He's got this nice little suburban life going. God comes to him and he said, hey, got a problem. My people, the Israelites, are literally enslaved and being oppressed. They're being pressed by the most powerful man in the world. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, most powerful, I mean, literally power with a capital P, I'd like you to go free my people. So what does Moses say? Five times Moses basically says, I think you got the wrong guy. Who am I to go confront Pharaoh? What's he saying? He says, I have no power. And you want me to go confront the most powerful person in the world. And so the interesting thing is, what is God's answer to this? You can see this all through the scriptures. His answer to Moses isn't, oh, it's okay, Moses, you can do it. No, he can't, actually. And he doesn't say to Moses, it's okay, Moses, I'm going to send you through a training institute. And when we get through, you're going to be the Henry Kissinger of the ancient world. And you're going to go negotiate. That's not what he says to him. What does he say? Very interesting. He says, I know, you're not that sharp. I completely agree with you, Moses. He says, but I will be with you. That is God's answer. He says to Moses, Moses says, what am I supposed to do? He goes, I'll be with you. That's his answer. Fast forward just a little bit. So he goes, and sure enough, God's with him. And actually, unbelievable. They literally, a bunch of slaves, defeat the most powerful nation in the earth. I mean, that should still be front page news today. I mean, that is so historically improbable, never happened, ever in history except that time. So he actually, truth goes and literally overturns power. So fast forward a little bit. The Israelites go to the promised land. They're sitting there looking in the promised land. They've got no weapons. They're going up against a superior civilization. Moses says to Joshua, his little lieutenant, he says, Joshua, time for me to die. I'm old man. I'm tired of this stuff. He said, so I'm going to lay down and rest with my fathers. And so you're going to take the Israelites into the promised land. And Joshua's like, do we have a plan? He goes, no, I never got around to that, Joshua. We don't actually have a plan. Do we have an army? No, really, don't have an army. Got nothing here for you. And so Moses dies. Joshua comes and the very first uh, chapter in the book of Joshua that recounts what he does. If you remember this, the very first chapter, God comes to Joshua and he basically says this. He says, Joshua... You're probably a little afraid, aren't you? Yeah, you bet. And three times in the first chapter, what does God say to him? I want you to be courageous. And Joshua goes, Yeah, why? Because I will be with you. Same answer. In other words, how can we endure? How do we confront the big enemy? The same answer is, I will be with you. Let me give you one more example. Many examples. Let me give you one more. Let's jump to the New Testament era. Jesus, raised from the dead, talking to the 11 guys, about to give them the great commission. He's about to basically tell them, here's your mission. Here's what I want you to do. They're saying to Jesus, so what do we do now? You're know, you going to ascend to heaven, and uh, what do you want us to do? And so Matthew 28, what does he say? I want you to go into the whole world. I want you to go play offense, boys. Don't wait for me. You get out there, and I want you to take this message, because there's power in this word, and make disciples of all the nations. And how does that end? And look, he said, listen to this. He said, I will be with you to the end, even to the end of time. You see that I will be with you again. And so you get these 11 smelly fishermen go confront the power of their day. And here's just one example. Peter and John are preaching in Jerusalem and the powers of the day, the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the Jews. Think think like being taken in front of the Supreme Court You know, to give an explanation of why you're saying what you're saying. And they have the power of life and death over you. So they go in and they say, listen, we need you to quit talking about this. Because that's not what we think and we don't like this new message. And Peter and John say, well, you're going to have to judge for yourself whether we need to obey you or God. But we're going to do what God says. A little cheeky if you think about it. You know, and so they say, great. Well, we don't really want to kill you the first time. So they beat them. I mean, they literally beat them bloody and send them out and say, don't talk about this anymore. And here's the really interesting thing. The book of Acts records this. It says, they left rejoicing, high-fiving each other because they've been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. What passages did we just see? Consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Because it develops endurance. In your life, And so you get this idea of, the answer to the question is, is, endurance is an active force. It's pushing back, if you will. It's our faith in action. And the question then is, well, how does that work in the face of this power? The only way it works is to have that certainty that God is with us. We endure because we know that no matter what happens, God knew it was going to happen. We know that no matter what happens, God will bend it to his purposes. Think Romans 8 28, in all circumstances, God works for the good of those who love him. It doesn't say, God does his best for you, but sometimes Satan wins. It doesn't say that. It says, in every circumstance, God bends everything to his purposes. You can trust him that he is in charge. And the idea that he is with us. In fact, Ephesians 1.13, one of my favorite passages, talks about this. You think about how is God with us. Sometimes I think we're not too in touch with that because we're not so in touch with the Spirit. Here's how God speaks about this. Ephesians 1.13 says that when you believed, you received the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a down payment, as a promise for what God will do. It's sort of like a bond. You put up a bond. All right, So I'm going to do some work on your house, and you say, Terry, you don't really look that good. That's true. You don't actually even look that trustworthy. So I tell you what, I'm going to let you do this work, but I need you to put up some money so that if you goof this up, I'll at least have that money to make it right. In other words, it's a guarantee that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. That's this word. That's that Greek word. He said the Holy Spirit is kind of my bond. In other words, I'm going to give you a deposit that's going to guarantee that I will accomplish this. In other words, I will fulfill, finish the work that I have started in you. And so the more we're in touch with that spirit of God in us, the more confidence and trust that we have that we can endure. Our faith is active. We can confront the big enemies of our world. That's God fueling us. Christians have endured bad government, and today are enduring bad governments, bad circumstances, tsunamis, and floods, and famines, and droughts, and all kinds of things in this world. And throughout history, Christians have endured all of that and thrived. In 2 Timothy, the church is going to not only endure Roman oppression, it's going to explode under Roman oppression. This is the first of the three things that Paul said. The first thing you must understand is the gospel is sneaky in the sense that the, the first thing it gives us is the ability to endure, the ability to see beyond our circumstances. that make sense? Powerful idea in the scripture. We can endure because God is with us. A great little quote that I want to talk about is, uh, and I want to talk about this more in our next lesson too, but This is a great, by the way, I really recommend this book to you, called Disappearing Church, written by uh, a guy from uh, Australia. He says, uh, observing on a little more of a global scale, which is what I, I'd like to talk about. We're talking about America a lot, but this is a, really a global issue. He said, we cannot solely rely on the contemporary Western church's favorite strategy of cultural relevance. And this is where I said we need to recalibrate our thinking, Because up until recent times, the way we felt as the Western church has felt that we should embrace this culture is to be relevant, to be like the culture. And so they'll say, oh, you guys are just kind of like us. Well, sure, come on to my church and come on in. His point is when you get to the point where Christ followers are a minority, trying to be relevant to the culture doesn't work. Because we have fewer and fewer touch points where we agree with the culture. It'd be like saying to Paul, Why don't you just try to be relevant? You know, go down and worship, you know, at the temple of Zeus and, you know, just live like Romans lived and do that. He's like, I can't do any of that. In other words, he didn't even try to be relevant to the culture, he just took the truth. And here's what he's saying he said, Our favorite strategy of cultural relevance in which Christianity in the church is made relevant to secular Western culture. That is not possible. The further they get apart. Now that's in our past when we lived in a a country that was predominantly based on Judeo-Christian ethic, you could do that. But that's less and less possible. He said instead we need to rediscover gospel resilience. The key element of resilience is this idea of endurance. The idea that we're in this for the long haul. You may push us, but you cannot crush us. Beautiful little passage, by the way. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, we are pressed on all sides. We are bent, but we're not broken. We're pressed, but we are not crushed. We are, uh, we are basically persecuted, but never abandoned. In other words, he says, the, the world is pushing on us, but it cannot crush us. The Christian, the gospel ability to endure because we know this is part of God's plan, we know God is with us in any circumstance, allows us to be resilient. It's like trying to crush the church. And that's, by the way, what the Roman Empire did. They tried to crush the church, and they never could crush the church. Didn't matter how many people they killed, didn't matter how illegal they made it, they could never crush the church. It would always spring back. This gospel message and the endurance that Christians had because of it, the church always would spring back. I would like to talk about, no questions, right? Great, that just either means A, you're all asleep, or B, this is making sense. I would like to talk just a little bit about, okay, so what? If that's the case, I'd like you to think about what does that endurance look like, that, that confidence of knowing God is with us, That historical sense of knowing Christians have been here before and they have thrived. Christians have always been sure that God's hand and plan is in the middle of this, no matter how hard it is to see. That gives us a huge ability to persevere. So I want to talk about action steps. So here's what I want us to do with this. Because you're saying, this is all kind of cerebral and I understand it, but what do I do? First thing I want you to do is I want you to memorize this verse. Write it on your coffee cup, whatever. Joshua 1.8. This is the essential power of the gospel for endurance. He's, this is what God said to Joshua. Three times he says this, but here's one. Beautiful little passage. I want you to be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, here's a fair question. That's something he said to Joshua. Is that something he says to us? Well, let me just say something that's a little unpopular. That is not what God says to everybody in the world. People that are not Christ's followers, that is not true for them. God is not with you wherever you go. In other words, to prosper you and bring you through difficulties. That is said to people who are on God's mission, about God's business, that's us. We are doing exactly what Joshua did. God said, I've got a commission for you to do. I want you to go into this world and take this good news. But wait a minute, God. It's a more and more hostile environment. Can't we just huddle up here? Well, that's what Joshua said. He said, You know, actually, it's not so bad on this side of the river. Maybe we don't really need to go into the promised land. God said, No. Be courageous, do not be frightened. You are about my business in the world and I will be with you wherever you go. That promise is to us as we are about God's business in this world. And then the second thing, and this is something that I really want you to do, this is a little thought experiment. When you catch yourself feeling anxious or fearful or frustrated or just downright angry at the the occurrences in the world and the the unrightness, the wrongness about so many things that are happening, when you feel that, ask yourself this. How would I react to this if I trusted that God had a purpose in it? How would I react to this if I trusted that God had a purpose in it? We need to, re as I started at the beginning, we need to recalibrate the way we're thinking about this, and our actions are going to flow from that. If I am confident that God has a purpose, even in the insanity of what's happening, how would I react? My suggestion is that's going to take our anxiety level and go, you know what, I can trust God with this. It's going to take our fear and say, you know what, this may not work out the way I want, but it's going to work out the way God wants, and he knows where I am, and he said, I will be with you. And I'm not going to get frustrated at this. I expect the world to be a sinful place, and so I'm going to be about God's business. I think it's going to make a huge difference in the way that we approach situations. So I mainly gave you that just to get you through next Tuesday. All right, so this is key number one it's just to get you through the election. So whatever happens, if it makes you unhappy, I want you to ask yourself, how would I react if I trusted that God has a purpose in this? We will endure. The gospel will power us to be resilient. The church is going to thrive in any circumstance in this country. And that's what I want to talk to you about in our next lesson. I want to talk about the second key to thriving, and it gets very specific, and I figured this is perfect timing because next Wednesday you're going to be saying, how are we going to survive in this environment? Well, actually, Paul has some very interesting things to say to Timothy about how the church literally thrives in a culture like we live in. So, this week, remember Joshua 1.8. God is with you. Be courageous. And secondly, no matter what happens... How would I react to this if I were absolutely certain that God has a plan in this situation? It'll make a huge difference in your life. It'll let the Holy Spirit power your faith to push against the circumstances of life. And then next week, we'll talk about how to start subversively overtaking this culture. All right? I'll see you next week.